0: Father, this morning we need to hear from you. We are a thirsty people, a hungry people. We spend our week chasing life in so many different things and oftentimes find ourselves at the end of the week being so deeply unsatisfied. I pray, Lord, that this morning as we Open our hearts and our ears to Your Word that You would satisfy us. Delight our hearts with You. Who You are, what You've done. Fill us with Your Spirit that we would find our life, our joy, our hope all in You and not in the things of this world. So come now as You promise that Your Word does not return to You void. Lord, come and keep that promise this morning. Use Your Word like a scalpel upon our hearts. Do surgery upon us. Change and mold and shape us into Your image through Your Word as we open our hearts to it now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, we will be starting a new series, a new sermon series called Called by God. And what we're looking at is What is God's call upon our lives as believers? Now usually whenever we hear that kind of language and we talk about calling, we tend to think of calling in the more uh, particular sense, in the more more specific sense, like what are you called to, like a vocation or a job or a career, or uh, oftentimes we use the language of calling to say, well I'm... I'm called to do this. I'm called to lead live here. You know, whenever we talk about this language, we're asking, who does God want me, what does God want me to do? Where does he want me to live? Whom does he want me to marry? Those kind of questions are often what we tend to think of whenever we think of calling, more specific path kind of thing. Well, in our series, we'll touch on that some, but one of the things we really want to focus on is the general call of God on our lives. In other words, what is it that God is calling each one of us in a whole life kind of sense to? In other words, what kind of people are we to be? Not necessarily, am I to go here or to do this? Those can be legitimate, but Scripture is far and away more concerned with what kind of person am I going to be wherever I am? How will I live my life? That is far and away the focus of Scripture and that's what we want to talk about. This morning as we start out the series we're going to try to get a picture of what is the big picture call upon God for my life. And now one of the things that stands out about the Scriptures is that God is a God who calls, who is engaged, who initiates. In fact, everything that we do is a response to his prior initiation. He is the pursuer. He is the one who comes after us. He is the one who calls, who summons us to a certain kind of life. And that's what we're talking about. And so for us, hearing the call of God is very important. And our part in this is to learn how to respond. How do we as a people, how are we to respond to God's call in our lives? And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning well we do a lot of calling in our culture i mean everybody in here right now i would imagine has an iPrecious or some other such device in your pocket where you can make a call in fact you might receive a few calls while you're sitting here listening to this please refrain from responding to that call not a call you respond to right now but we're always calling others and and uh, being called and uh, sometimes we respond, sometimes we put it on silent, you know, sometimes we get uh, put on hold. And one of the, the ways, uh, one of the things that I have to call that I always dread is whenever I have to call customer service for something. You know, that, that is usually a very unresponsive kind of experience, right? You know, if something goes wrong, like you're, something's wrong with your computer or you notice something on your bank account and you realize, oh, I got to call customer service, and I'm going to get put on hold, and I'm going to have to push buttons instead of talking to a person, and and I'm probably going to sit on hold for about an hour, and then finally I'll get a person that doesn't speak English, and this is how it works, right? I love those, uh, the Discover Card commercials, do you remember these, where, you know, they're trying to tout their excellent customer service, so they have this common commercial that shows you, you know, USA Credit, you know, this fictional credit agency where you call and, and, uh, Whenever you call customer service, you get this bearded Eastern European man who is in some sort of a hut in the middle of Siberia named Peggy. You know this commercial. the The best one is is whenever Bobby Bowden calls up, he's got he says, "Yeah, Peggy, I got five dagum charges here on my on my credit card." And Peggy, you know, he goes, "Dad Not not to know what dad gum is. And anyways, in all of these. He doesn't speak English, he's totally unresponsive. And after a few questions and replies of yes, yes, finally, he gets a piece of paper and crumples it up and says, you break up, call, ne- call back next week, click. Everybody loves that, everybody connects with that because that's what it's like, call customer service. Well, there's, there's for me and probably for you, an example a little bit closer to home, actually in my home. You know, oftentimes Ashley and I are making, we're calling our children to certain things in our house. In fact, every day, you know, calling them to nearly impossible tasks like brush your teeth, like get ready for bed. You know, these ridiculous things that we ask of them. But nonetheless, we call and almost every time there's no response. They're totally unresponsive. Stop hitting your brother. Brush your teeth. Get ready for bed. No response whatsoever. And it's maddening, right, to call and get no response. And it drives me crazy until the moment that I realize, oh yeah, that's really the way I am with God. So they are. He calls, he calls, he calls through his word. And I am so often unresponsive. Maybe, maybe you can relate. Maybe at first glance you think, no, i respond to God in my life. But if you look a little deeper and you ask questions like, how responsive am I to His Word? How often do I change course? That is like, there's something that I want and I decide not to do it because God prefers something different. How often does that happen in your life? How often do you change your mind based upon what He says, and who He is, and what He to Whenever we begin to ask these questions, we begin to say, Oh, maybe I'm pretty unresponsive too. What we're going to look at in our passage today is, uh, What is God's call upon our lives? And how does He want us to respond to Him? And we're going to notice three things in particular. From our passage. One is, what is Paul's calling? We're going to look at that first of all, the Apostle Paul. Next, Paul goes on, what is every Christian's calling? Because he kind of, he kind of goes really big and really broad right after he gives his calling. And then we're going to step back and ask for us, what is God's calling for us and how are we responding? That's what we'll see in our passage. So look at your passage together now. We're looking at the book of Romans. Now this is the very first passage in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans is one of the most beloved, outstanding books of the entire Bible. Uh, For the Apostle Paul, it is such a complete picture of his gospel and all of its vast implications, not only for God's people, but also for the whole world. It's a wonderfully rich book But right here at the very beginning of the book, Paul begins his letter, really it's a letter, uh, he begins his letter in the same way that most letters in the ancient world were written. You know, in our day, if we're gonna write a letter to someone, we put our introduction usually at the end, right? We start off with the person, the greeting to the person we're writing to. But in the ancient world, they would start with an introduction of themselves. And right here in this greeting is exactly what Paul does. Now this greeting is not just a formality for Paul, but in these seven verses at the very beginning of this letter, Paul is literally laying a foundation, preparing a launching pad from which to move into the book of Romans and all that he will say about Christ's work and its implications for our lives. And so everything that he says here is carefully chosen for what he's going to say about the gospel, what he's going to say about his audience, and what he's going to say about himself. So let's look carefully at this. So Paul starts off in these very few verses and he says, let me introduce you to myself. Let me let you in on who I am, what defines me, what drives me, what identifies me. And right off the bat, Paul says, Paul, a servant, Of Christ Jesus the very first thing he says about himself is you need to know I am a servant of Christ Jesus now a few notes uh servant is an adequate translation but the word there the Greek word is doulos and douloses in the ancient world were slaves like a slave some of your translations might say bond servant but a doulos wasn't a servant that could come and go as they pleased They were someone who had been purchased. They were a slave that belonged to a master. They were the possession of their master. And Paul is saying, I'm a doulos of Christ Jesus. Now, another thing to note here, oftentimes we see Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus all throughout the New Testament. And sometimes we tend to think maybe Christ is like his last name, uh, but it's not. It's a title. it it is the Greek of Messiah. And it's a royal term. It means king. So Paul right here is essentially saying, let me introduce you to myself. The first thing, the main thing you need to know about me, what makes me tick, who I am, how I see myself, I am a slave of King Jesus. That's what I am. I am his possession. I belong to him. My life Everything that I have, every breath that I take, is His. I'm enslaved. Right off the bat, that's what he said. That's how he introduces himself. And then he says, and now here's what I'm called to. Here's what my life is about. Here's my purpose. I'm called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, apostle means a sent one. It's like a messenger. Kind of like in the ancient world how a king would have ambassadors. And so he would send these ambassadors out to foreign nations and foreign kings and foreign peoples and they would deliver a message for the king. The king did not have email or tweets or anything in that day. Somebody actually had to do it. Now an ambassador had a great dignity because they represented the king. And they were carrying his message for the world and so the Apostle Paul says right here that's what I am I am a messenger of King Jesus I'm an Apostle I've been sent out by him with one message with one piece of news to deliver to the world the gospel of God now sometimes we think about the gospel we use the word a lot and we think of the gospel as like instructions on what you're to do And we think of the gospel as meaning what I must do to be saved. Now, that's not what the gospel is. That is an implication of the gospel. I mean, the gospel demands a response in our lives. But the gospel, of course, means good news. It is a piece of news. It is a piece of news about a historical fact. It's announcing something that God has done and then drawing out the implications. It's an announcing something that God has accomplished, that He has accomplished in His Son. And Paul here, as he said, this is what my calling is. I'm sent as a messenger of this news. God has entered into history, and He's done something, and it has implications for the whole world. This news has the power to change anyone who will embrace it. And if you know anything about Paul in his writings, Paul can't, can't go two verses without going back to the gospel, without going back to this news of what God has done in Christ and drawing out its implications, uh, exploring it, uh, looking at it from this angle and that angle. He, He almost can't go two verses. And right here, he said, I've been set apart for this news. He said, let me stop for a minute and just dwell on it. Let me draw it out. Let me explore it. Let me enjoy it. Let me tell you what it means. And he begins to go into the gospel here. A few things to notice as he summarizes the gospel here is one as he says, this is the gospel, this is the news that God had through all of history past through his holy prophets pointed ahead to. In fact, all of history was looking ahead to this thing that God was going to do. All of the Old Testament was looking ahead to an arrival of the Son of God of King Jesus. And that's the first thing he references here too. Then he says it's regarding his son. The whole gospel hinges on Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done. The next he says is, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. That's Paul's shorthand way of taking you back to all that the prophets said. You see, they were looking ahead to Messiah who would come. A coming king one who would come and establish God's kingdom, destroy all of his enemies, change the whole world. He to be the son of David. And Paul's saying this is him. The one that all of history was waiting for. He has come. The son of God. The Messiah. The King. And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. See, Paul here references the fact that he was raised from the dead. He came and he lived a life we could not live. He died the death we could not die. And then he was raised to life as a guarantee for our future resurrection. And in Paul's mind, his resurrection is the validation of his willy. And Paul ends this little summary of the gospel by saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. In a sense, that's a summary of the whole gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. Do what Paul does here as he says, let me introduce you to myself. I am a slave to King Jesus. You want to know why? Because this news I've been given, it's changed me. I've believed it. It's come to define me. Everything about me. I exist to make known what He has done. And in response to what He's done for me, I'm a slave. I belong to him. Paul's saying, my life is not to get the wrong thing. And that is now we might say, well, come on. That's not fair. This is the Apostle Paul, right? Just the Apostle Paul. Something entirely different for us. Surely, our calling as just ordinary Christians is a bit different. Well, let's look and see what he says. In verse 5... Paul then moves to talking about what is his mission that he's been called to do. Verse 5, Through him, that is Jesus, and for his name's sake, his whole mission is for Christ's glory. We have received grace and apostleship to call people from all the Gentiles, or all the nations, to the obedience that comes from faith. Now Paul, you know, if you're reading Paul, you've got to slow down, right? Paul packs so much in every little verse. It's hard to understand sometimes. You've got to slow down and say, what is he saying? Where's my subject? Here's my verb. And Paul here is saying, here's what I've been called to do. Here's my mission. And it's essentially God's mission in the world. Here's what God's asking. He is wanting to call people from all of the nations to the obedience that comes from faith. What I want to focus on is that phrase. The obedience that comes from faith. Because you see, for Paul, that is a summary of the whole Christian life. He says, I'm going out and I'm calling people to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm going out and I'm calling people to believe the gospel. I'm going out and I'm calling people to respond to him, to be united to Christ. The way that he... Summarizes all of that, describes all of that, is by saying, "I'm calling them to the obedience that comes from faith." That is what the whole Christian life is about. That is what every Christian is called for, the obedience that comes from faith. So, what does he mean by that? Paul has put together concepts that we oftentimes think are in opposite to one another. We We tend to often think that obedience and faith, well, those are things that are kind of at odds with one another, right? But not for Paul. Paul oftentimes puts faith and obedience together. Sometimes he calls faith obedience and vice versa. But in this particular phrase, you see, the obedience, which is what a life of responding to God is all about, it actually flows from faith. In other words, faith is the fountainhead of this kind of obedient life. Faith is what drives it. Faith is what motivates, energizes, empowers this life that he's called us to. And it's not just faith in faith. It's faith in the gospel. That's what Paul's whole point in the whole book is about, It's what he's just talked about. It is faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is faith in what God has done in saved hearing the good news of the gospel, I will embrace this. I will stake my life upon it. And whenever you embrace the gospel in this way, it changes you. It has power to redirect your life. It generates a certain kind of life. And that's what he's talking about. This life that he's called us to is one that is driven by faith in the gospel. Not just at one time, not just as you start out, but day by day, resting, trusting, depending upon the work of God in Christ in and Paul says, the life that he's calling us to flows from that. But it's not just that. It is a life of obedience. Now, obedience just means surrendering to God. It's just submission to Him. Obedience is saying, You are the authority over me. You're in charge. I'll do what you say. I'll follow you. That's what obedience is. It's doing the will of God. That's what obedience is. Now, that's the whole problem also, the will of God. The whole problem of humanity is that our will is different than God's will. The whole problem with humanity is that we prefer our will to God's will exactly what happened in the garden you know God creates this beautiful world with Adam and Eve there in the garden he says this whole place is good you should enjoy it There's one tree I want you to not eat from. that's my will for you if you obey me you will enjoy everlasting life and joy and fellowship with me. that was God's will for them but Satan came and said don't you want to be in charge Don't you want to distrust that he has your best interests at heart? I mean, shouldn't you be able to decide this? And Adam and Eve decided, yeah, I think so. I think I want to be God. I think I want to determine what I want to do. In that moment, man's will became different from God's. And the result was rebellion and brokenness of all the world. What's wrong with all of humanity? is that our will is in bondage to the kept. It's in opposition to God. But you see, the whole thing that Jesus Christ has come to do has been to change that. The whole thing that He's come to do is, as He describes His mission over and over and over, is to bring the kingdom of God. What does it mean to bring the kingdom of God? We hear that a lot, it's kind of religious talk. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? Well, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, it's simply this, your will be done on the earth like it is in heaven. For God's will to come means He is obeyed. It means His rule comes. It means He is submitted to. It means what He wants goes. And just like Jesus points out in the Lord's Prayer, in heaven, it's very much like that. Right? In heaven, His will is done immediately, immediately, with absolute joy and fullness of heart. Every creature in heaven delights in God's will. But the earth is very different. It's an open rebellion. God's will is rejected. So Jesus has come to deal with the discrepancy between heaven and earth and for his kingdom to come in our lives, in our world, means your will be done in me, in my life, in our world, just like it is in The center of Christ's work has come to bring God's will into our hearts. To change us. To conform our will to Him. So that we become a people that say, Your way, your way is best. What you want is what I want. I want your ways in my life. I want your ways in my world. How can I be a part of that? That is what the obedience that comes from faith is all about. Now, I think we often have a lot of trouble with the term obedience. Uh, also with God's will. Sometimes with obedience we kind of reduce it to principles, to steps. You know, we think seven steps to a better marriage or ten steps to perfectly obedient children. You know, We, we tend to reduce obedience to simply principles or rules. or all that. Those are certainly part of it, but it's a reduction of what obedience really is. And in the same way, God's will Oftentimes, whenever we hear the term God's will and we talk about God's will, we tend to think what that means is some specific thing He wants me to do. Like, who does He want me to marry? What job does He want me to take? Where does He want me to live? Where does He want my kids to go to school? We tend to think of God's will predominantly in some special path that He wants us to take. Now, it's not entirely illegitimate to do that. It's just that the Scriptures very seldom even talk about God's will in that way you know how the Scriptures talk about God's will? His commands. The kind of people He wants us to be. You know, things like, I want you to put other people before yourself. I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. You know, these kind of just crazy things that we say, huh, what's that? You know, that's... I don't even know what you're talking about. The things that we tend to just put out of our mind. That's God's will. It's the kind of people we are. It's how we live. It's how we treat people. That is God's will in our life. That is what obedience is. So, Paul in verse 6, having said, this is God's call on all Christians to, to the obedience that comes from faith. He then turns to the Roman church and applies it to them In verse 6, and he says, And you also are among those called to belong to Jesus Christ. See, there it is. That's what your calling is. You are called to belong to him. Verse 7, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's it again. He reminds them, You are loved by God in the Gospel more than you can ever fathom. Now, in response to that, He calls you to live as saints. What does it mean to be a saint? saint simply means set apart, called out. It's that we are to be a people that He has called out of the world. We're to be His treasured possession, as He says. His chosen people, a people that are separate, that are called out and that belong to him as his special people. That's what it means to be a saint. Paul right here says, faith in the gospel, do life more than you can ever imagine. Call to a life of obedience. you called to be saints. That's his call So we've seen what the calling is for Paul what the calling is for every Christian what does this mean for us today, now simply this if you are a Christian now I don't know if that applies to everybody in here but if you are a Christian, this is a very important to get you belong to God, lock, stock and barrel the whole nine yards you belong everything that you have everything that you are every breath that you take He has purchased you your life is called to be a response to His grace in your life you are called to live not for your own pleasure but for His pleasure that is His call upon your life Now, I think we often get confused about the gospel I think we can very tend to think that the significance of the gospel means Jesus came to set me free to do whatever I want to do, right? If I have grace, it just becomes a way of pacifying my conscience, of justifying doing what I want to do. Right? So often we, we tend to use grace in that way to say, I'm okay. You know, The gospel means I'm okay. I can do whatever I want to do. I can live my life the way that I want to live. We get confused about the gospel. So you see that is the whole problem that is the whole thing that he came to remedy the fact that we want our own way and refuse to submit to his will see jesus has come to free you from the tyranny of youth that's the significance of the gospel that's what he's come to do he's come to free us from our flesh our sinful nature that is constantly saying i want to do What I want to do, I want to determine my life. I want to determine my relationships. I want to determine how I use my body. I want to determine how I use my money and my time. I want to be in charge, even every single one of us, and that is the very thing Jesus came to change and to redeem in us. You see what the Gospel says? He says, you did belong to your own will. And because of it, you were dead. Just like your father Adam. You were dead. But He has made you alive. He's purchased you with His own precious blood. And you now belong to Him. He has purchased you out of pure grace. You had nothing to do with it. And if it's pure grace... There's nothing He can't ask us to do. If it's pure grace and we've contributed nothing, nothing is off limits. We belong to Him. I think about a great illustration of this. A new movie that's just come out. I haven't seen it yet. I've seen the older version of Les Miserables. I've seen the one with Liam Neeson in it, if you've seen that one. But it's a French play about... This character, Jean Valjean, who is imprisoned uh, wrongly for 19 years for stealing bread. And while he is imprisoned, he becomes a hard man. He becomes a harsh man. And finally, as the movie picks up, he's just come out of prison and uh, he's under these harsh uh, parole sanctions. Uh, There's this. this official that's after him, Javert, and he's on the run, and everything is stacked against him, and he's bitter, and he's afraid, and he finds himself on the doorstep of a bishop. And and the bishop welcomes him into his home, and he shares his table with him, and puts him up, and in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean is overcome with a desire to take and to leave, and in the middle of the night, he goes up, and he goes into the, the dining room of the bishop, the dark room, and begins to load his knapsack with all of the silver that belongs to the bishop. And in the darkness of the room, the bishop comes in and happens upon him as he's stealing literally his family's inheritance. And you see this moment where their faces meet one another. And the bishop is shocked. And Jean Valjean, you can literally see the shame on his face what will happen? Jean Valjean knocks him out. He knocks the bishop out cold right there. He just goes back to filling his knapsack and takes off into the night. A thief. Well, then the very next scene, you see the bishop, and he's in his garden at his house, and his wife is weeping over her silver being gone, and he's telling her, forget about it. Stop talking about the silver. And about that time, the police walk in. They've caught Jean Valjean, with the knapsack full of silver. And they come in, and his wife says, Oh, thank God you've caught him. And he walks up, and they say, We've caught this man. He's stolen from you. Uh, And he even said, He even said you gave it to him. And the bishop says, Well, of course I did. The bishop looks at him, and he says, I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. You forgot the candlesticks. The candlesticks are worth at least 2,000 francs. I'm so glad you've returned him to me. And they say, you mean he was telling the truth? Yes, of course. Here, fetch the the candlesticks for him. They take the handcuffs off, and you see in Jean Valjean's face this look of utter astonishment as he, a man who is deserving of no mercy at all finds this incredible grace in this man that he has stolen from and abused and wronged and he is overcome by the power of grace so freely shown to him. And the bishop comes up to him and the policemen leave and he takes the shawl off his head and he says never forget, remember you have promised to become a new man. And John Valjean says, I promise why are you doing this? He's shocked at this sign of grace. And the bishop, the bishop looks at him and he says, Jean, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. I have purchased you with this silver. I've purchased your soul with this silver. I've redeemed you and ransomed you from hatred and fear. And now I give you back to God. This moment of incredible grace. And the whole rest of the movie is about Jean Valjean who has become a new man. Having never forgotten this sign of grace that was shown him in this moment. See, it's a perfect picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we are just like Jean Valjean. Thieves, Liars, murderers. If you don't think you are, you need to take a closer look in your heart. We're just like Him. And Jesus Christ comes to us and says, You are my brother. You are my sister because I have purchased you, not with silver and gold, but with my very own precious blood. And you now belong to me entirely. And you have promised To become a new man. That's what the gospel says to us. It changes us. We belong to Him. That's our calling. So the question for us is how will we respond? This morning we have an opportunity to respond to His call upon our life. It's one of the most tangible things that He has given to us in communion, in the Lord's table, where He's given us this meal to picture for us very tangibly His grace, His gospel as we feed upon His broken body as we drink in His blood for us it's meant to bolster your faith to very tangibly show you it's true it's like eating the gospel is what this is about and as we do this if you've been here before you know this takes a little time like you come up you take the elements. We pray for you. But there's also, there's space here. There's time to sing, to reflect, to pray for one another as you see people going up. And I would encourage you to make the most of this time because this is about, it's an opportunity to respond to you. To come in repentance, to come to Him and confess all the ways that you resist Him. And really, you're not telling him anything new. He already knows it. You're just agreeing with him. Come to him and say, I resist you constantly. But pour your grace into my heart. Open my hands. Change me. So I encourage you, use the singing.